This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters, joined each week by my co-host, Alicia Jenkins. We're here to discuss new cases each week, bring victim stories to light, and advocate for the family members of those who we have lost. We will also expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving if you celebrate Thanksgiving or just had a great week. We are covering a case today that I mentioned covering a while back when we covered the case of Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, two of Britain's most notorious serial killers, a serial killer couple that preyed on children, and they were absolutely horrific people. Well, in the end of that coverage, I talked about covering the case we're now covering today. It is another case out of Britain. It is another serial killer couple. And it is really, really bad, you guys. Worse than I thought it was. Um, So it's definitely going to be a three-parter. There is just too much information in there that I cannot leave out because you know me. So the victims in this case are not just those who the couple killed, but also the couple's children. These children suffered a horrific life at the hands of their parents. And I read a book by one of the children, Mae West, and her book is called Love As Always, Mom. And so I went through that and that gave me a lot of insight into her childhood and everything she went through. It's an incredible book. You should get it. There is another daughter who also wrote a book. Um, her name is Anne West and she she wrote a book called Out of the Shadows. Both of them obviously have incredible insight into the life that they live. They also both survived an incredibly traumatizing childhood. So these books I highly recommend. You should check them out if you want more insight into this case. With that, are you ready for today's case? Social Services is making their way to the home of Frederick and Rosemary West. They live in Gloucester, England, and the couple has raised nine children together. By this time, their four oldest are into adulthood and out of the house, leaving five kids still in the home. But the reason Social Services is coming is to remove those five children from the care of the Wests. There had been reports of abuse in the home, and when Child Services gets involved, they affirm these suspicions to be true. Are all these kids their biological they're all biological in some way. So Fred, he does have a kid that is not Rosemary's. So their oldest, Anna Marie, is just his biological kid. And she has a different mom. And then the rest of them are um, Fred and Rose's. Some of them are not Fred's. It's kind of confusing, <laughs> but we'll see. But yes, they're biologically related in some way. Okay, so no foster or adopted. Yeah, no foster or adopted kids. So they're coming, they're going to take the kids and they're taken to the Crowley Manor. It's a city conference center where they're interviewed by police and then they're placed into the care of residential social workers. And as the years pass, the social workers take note of these offhand comments that the kids make regarding their abuse. The most alarming thing being said is that they had a sister go missing six years ago. 
This sister is Heather West. She is the oldest biological daughter of Fred and Rose West. And they did, like I said earlier, raise an older daughter together, Anna Marie. She's Fred's biological daughter, but Rose is her stepmom. Now, the kids aren't saying outright that Heather is missing or that their parents had done anything to her, but they're saying things like Heather is under the patio. Is Heather one of the nine? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so Heather's one of the nine kids that they've raised, but now social workers are hearing that she's missing. So they really only have eight. eight, or So they only took five in. Yes, because she'd be one of the four that would be in adulthood now. Okay. So she'd be one of the older ones. That'd be so weird. Yeah, to like have a foster kid come in and say something like that or what? Well, just to be the kid. Oh, like, to be like the oh, sibling. My- sister like i mean i feel like in our family like you guys wouldn't let me rest till you knew where your sister was yeah these kids as we'll see we'll see a lot more probably in part two but these kids are like all severely abused and you know they come from a really really strange home so it was weird for them but they just i think they really thought their life was kind of normal too because it's all they knew Mm -hmm. so I don't know if a lot of them just thought Heather had ran away but then they had grown up hearing things like Heather's under the patio so they're like reiterating these things and the police are like this is really weird yeah we have to check into this good yeah Very good. So when the police are notified that the West may have a daughter that's been missing, they do start to investigate. Fred and Rose tell officers that they never reported Heather's disappearance because she ran away. They say that she was a lesbian who found a girlfriend and that the two got into drugs together. Fred and Rose say she was just off dealing drugs somewhere. She's not actually missing. And police are like, okay, well, we're we're going to try and track her down. But despite their extensive efforts, police just keep coming to dead ends while looking for Heather. There is no trail leading to her whereabouts. So as these leads dry up, Detective Terry Moore with the Gloucester Police Department pushes for a search warrant to be issued. Terry wants to search the backyard of the West home, and he doesn't even think they'll find anything. Like, sure, these comments from the children are really weird, but it was just so unlikely they would actually find Heather's remains there. He just wants to rule it out so that they can continue their search for her without having this suspicion looming over the investigation. Like, did he not think that uh, they'd be stupid enough to do that in the backyard? I think so. Yeah, it just seems so unlikely that if he... I feel like lots of people do it in their backyard. I know. And they're so stupid, thankfully. (laughs) Like, just like Chad Daybell. Well, yeah. And it's like, I'm glad they're all really dumb because then they get caught. But yeah, I don't know why they... I was just surprised that the police are like, let's just do it to rule it out. Like, it's not in there, but lots of people end up. I know. In the backyard. Who knows how many like homicides Terry had investigated back then. I'm not sure. He just said like it seems so unlikely to him that these parents killed their child and then buried her in the backyard. Hmm. Maybe just for himself. It's like when you think of it as a parent or just as a person, you're like that would never happen. (laughs) Because normal people don't do that. Yeah. So... On Thursday, February 24th, 1994, Terry leads police officers to the home on 25 Cromwell Street with a search warrant in hand. Fred is out working that day, so he isn't home when police knock on the door. 
but Rose is, and she's pissed when the warrant is handed over to her. She starts lipping off to the detectives when she sees the digging equipment, but she can't do anything to stop them. When Fred catches wind of the search going on in his backyard, he heads to the police station, telling them that this is a huge waste of time. They're not going to find anything by ruining his backyard with all their equipment. And he goes on and on about where Heather could be, saying she's probably in Dubai selling drugs, reminding police officers that she ran off with some woman wearing a red skirt. And his stories are all over the place, so police just brush him off. Now it's getting even weirder because he's literally making his way to the police station to tell officers to stop digging. So now things are getting a little more suspicious. And well, it's like, yeah, you have no choice. Exactly. And that's what they say to him. Like, okay, well, we're digging. And if we don't find anything, then you have nothing to worry about. And Fred goes home defeated. He's watching as the crew is digging outside. And when the first day of the search comes to an end, there are no signs of human remains. But the search scared Fred so much that as police are ending it, they're walking out and he blurts out, okay, okay, I did it. I killed my daughter, Heather, and I did bury her in our backyard. So Fred is actually admitting to this murder for two reasons. First, he thinks it's going to stop the search of his backyard so that police don't go further and discover the many secrets being hidden within the dirt. Second, he wants to protect his wife, Rose. And Police are satisfied with hearing that they are on the right track, but it doesn't mean they're going to stop digging up Fred's backyard. So the following day, they're back, and the search team discovers a human bone. So this is when senior pathologist Bernard Knight is called to the scene, and a full skeleton is uncovered. Barry takes note of something unusual, though. There's an extra bone here. Not only have they discovered the remains of Heather West, there is a third thigh bone. The entire backyard is now set to be dug up, and by February 28th, three skeletal remains are uncovered. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So now this is turning into something way bigger. And by this point, Fred is already arrested. He had been arrested on the first night of the dig when he admitted to killing his 16-year-old daughter, Heather, six years earlier. And now that more bodies have been discovered, Fred helps police make the identifications. The other two bodies are those of 18-year-old Shirley Robinson and 16-year-old Allison Chambers. The investigation has now gone to the investigation of one domestic homicide to something much more sinister. And within one week of the investigation, Fred hands his solicitor, a.k.a. lawyer, I think they call a lawyer a solicitor in England. Yeah. They have a few different words that they use than we do, so Mm -hmm. I'll kind of try to point those out. But this solicitor is Howard Ogden. And he gives him this note that sends everyone into a tailspin. This note says that Fred gives Howard Ogden the permission to let police know that not only is he involved in the murders of the three girls found buried in his backyard, but that he also committed nine other murders. Six more women would be discovered buried in the cellar of the 25 Cromwell Street home. One victim is recovered from the previous home of Fred and Rose West, and two other victims are found in shallow graves in a field near Fred's hometown. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it goes from them just looking for the couple's daughter to realizing to a that this bunch of people murdered. Yeah, they realize that this guy's a serial killer, and police right away are also suspicious of Rose. 
Yeah. These discoveries do bring an end to a decades-long killing spree done by one of Britain's most notorious serial killer couples. And you might remember that we did that four-part coverage on the Moores murders, which took place in Manchester, England. They were carried out by the serial killer couple Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. And I had mentioned in part four that there was a time Myra Hindley was incarcerated with another woman who was a part of a killer couple. And this woman was Rose, Rose West. And it's rumored that the two were lovers for a brief period while in HMP Durham prison. And they had gotten together in 1995, right when Rose came into the prison. Myra had already been there since 1966. And... That doesn't surprise me at all because these women are so similar in their crimes. And I said back then that I wanted to cover the case at some point since it had that connection to the Moore's murders. I had just briefly scanned what Rose was in prison for. But as I got into my research for this, it was much worse than I could have imagined. So Fred and Rose West, they are a truly deranged couple. In order to understand how they became the monsters they were, we have to dive into their backgrounds first. So Fred West was born in September of 1941 in the village of Muckmarkle in Herefordshire, England. I don't know if I'm saying that very good. Herefordshire, England. I didn't spell it out as it's spelled. I spelled it out in the, what the is that way, called? Like the phonics? Like the way you pronounce it, but that's kind of a hard one. Herefordshire, England. His parents are Walter, Walter Stephen West and Daisy Hannah Hill, and he's the first child. When he's three years old, the family moves to the Moorcourt Cottage, which is a semi-detached building on the Moorcourt farm that his dad would be working at. His dad was a milking herdsman and harvest hand, and they lived on this farm off-grid, meaning they had no electricity and their heat came from a log fire. And by the time Fred is 10 years old, his mom Daisy had birthed eight kids, but only six had survived. People said Fred seemed to be his mom's favorite. He was a lonely kid who really didn't have friends outside of his own siblings, so he was a big-time mommy's boy. His schoolmates described him as looking lethargic and dim. People definitely weren't drawn to him, and they found him pretty weird. Plus, he was always getting into trouble. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, lethargic and dim. (laughs) I mean, I feel bad for him as a kid being described as that, but it describes him well when he's an adult. So the farm chores he had taught him a strong work ethic as well as leaving him feeling this constant need for money because his family was so poor. So even through the hard work, they, you know, remained poor and Fred starts stealing by his teams and gets this habit of petty theft. By age 15, Fred had dropped out of school in December of 1956, and he takes on a job as a laborer there at the Moorcourt farm that he grew up on. The following year in 1957, Fred and his younger brother John start going to this youth club pretty often. They were known to be little creeps who were super aggressive to girls that attended. He would literally walk up to girls and just start fondling them with no warning. It was disgusting and off-putting to everyone. Ew. Yeah. The girls are like, literally, back off. Get away from me. So Fred, he claims he had been sexually abused as a child, and he says his mom is the one who taught him to have sex, saying he was only 12 years old when he started having sex with his mom. Fred also says he saw his dad witness 
he saw he witnessed his dad sexually abusing Fred's little sisters. And I'm not sure how much truth is in these claims because it might just be a way that Fred is trying to justify what he becomes himself and his own incestuous behavior later in life. But maybe he really did learn this behavior from within his family. It's his younger brother, Doug, who says these claims are not true and that they are just fa a fantasy of Fred's. So I don't know, though, because later on, John, Fred's brother, is also a pedophile. So to me, it seems likely they could have been abused. But then the one brother says they weren't. So I don't know. I go back and forth. By Fred's teens, he was performing acts of bestiality, meaning he was having sex with animals, which is a big red flag to me that he was going to turn out to be sexually sadistic. When Fred is 17 years old, he gets into a gnarly motorcycle accident and he's in a coma for seven days and he has a broken arm, a broken leg, but he also fractured his skull. Following this traumatic brain injury, people did notice he be his behavior become even more alarming. He was now flying into fits of rage over the most random things. And there is somewhat of a connection between head injuries and killers. There was a study done by the University of Glasgow in Scotland where they looked into the neurodevelopment and psychological risk factors in serial killers and mass murderers. While most of these killers have a mixture of biological, psychological, and sociological factors that play into their behavior, it is stated that, quote, potentially a significant portion of mass or serial killers may have had neurodevelopment disorders such as head injury. And I've heard this a lot. Like, a lot of people just mention it, like, oh, this person had a head injury and here they are, like, being a killer. You hear it a lot in the Aaron Hernandez murders, that football player. Oh, yeah. Because he had all those concussions and he let his behavior started becoming really erratic. Uh-huh. So... Well, they get like a post-traumatic brain injury, right? Yeah. And so I do think it can just, like, what can that do affect your behavior, affect mm -hmm. your choices? Yep. So, yes, he has this head injury, this first one from the motorcycle accident, but it's not the only one that Fred suffers from. Because just two years after the accident, Fred comes across a girl on a fire escape outside of the youth club. He decides to be the little creep that he is and he starts grabbing at her and he's trying to inappropriately touch her, but she's not okay with it. And she bravely winds up her arm and she punches Fred square in the face and it sends him flying off the fire escape. They were actually two floors up, so when he hits the ground, the damage to his head is pretty intense. And I mean, he did deserve it. Like, don't go groping people yeah. and like being aggressive and then you won't get punched. <laughs> So, but this is his second head injury. And here's what makes me question how much of his story about being sexually abused as a child is true. Because in June of 1961, Fred's 13-year-old sister confides in her mom, telling her that Fred had been raping her for months now. She's kept his secret out of fear, but now she can't hide it any longer because she's pregnant. His mom is furious, and she does report her son to the police. Within a month, he is arrested for assaulting his sister. But then again, I go back and forth because his response also indicates he was probably abused. When he's arrested, he's like, yeah, I did have sex with my sister and I have been molesting girls for years now, but doesn't everybody do it? Oh. Yeah. So then it's like, so were you being abused? Because that's like not normal to think everyone's doing that. Mm-hmm. 
Fred is set to go to trial on November 9th, 1961, and his mom was going to testify in his defense. But So his sister was pregnant? Yeah. With his baby? Yes. Oh. And his mom get you know, his mom turns him in and does get him arrested. Mm-hmm. But then she is going to testify in his defense. I mean, I guess I could see a lot of moms testifying for their kids, even when they maybe don't agree with their choices. I don't know. I don't. I probably would not want to testify. Mm, that's a rough one. Yeah, because it's you like have your daughter and then your son. Oh, yeah. I would definitely choose my daughter. I mean, I choose whoever was being abused. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, his sister actually ends up refusing to testify against him so the case crumbles and they drop it he doesn't face any legal consequences but his family does disown him and his mom says he's never allowed to step foot into their home again so he moves away from his house and in with his aunt violent violent violet (laughs) but his aunt violent apparently i have violence on my mind because this story is so horrific But apparently Fred makes amends with his parents just about a year later in 1962. However, the rest of his family still wants nothing to do with him. Fred is 21 by now, and it's the same year that he reconnects with Catherine Bernadette Costello, who goes by her nickname of Rena. They had met back in 1960 at a dance hall and had little crushes on each other for a few months before Rena and her family moved back to Glasgow, Scotland, which the other... I mean, Rena is not a bad person, but the other little connection to the Myra Henley and Ian Brady is that Ian Brady is from Glasgow, Scotland, and he had gotten in so much trouble there that they like kicked him out and he was forced to go to England, which there's a lot of, you know, little back and forth between Glasgow and where they're at in Gloucester. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, just another little connection. But when the two run into each other again, Rena is pregnant, and it's speculated that she had gone back to England because of her family's disapproval of her pregnancy. They were not happy with the fact that Rena would be having a mixed race child. So not cool. Rena's family's being a little racist there, and it's super sad for Rena and her child. She was pregnant by an Asian man, so her daughter would be half Asian, and apparently that was not okay with them. So I guess Rena's family wouldn't like us, since we're about 1% Asian. (laughs) (laughs) They don't like the mixed. So that's just speculated that she left so that she wasn't getting the heat from them. And once Fred and Rena find each other again, they marry quickly on November 7th, 1962 in Ledbury, England. But soon they're back in Scotland when they move to Coatbridge. Fred was going to be working there as an ice cream truck driver. Now, Rena's daughter, Charmaine, is born in March of 1963, and Fred agrees to take on the child as his own. However, it would be obvious that Charmaine had Asian descent, so they explain it to others by saying Rena was pregnant with her and Fred's child, but that they had a miscarriage, so instead, they found a child to adopt. Super odd to me that they have to come up with this story, but... Okay, say it again. So, Fred agrees to take on Rena's child but she will be half Asian. And so people would know she did not come from Fred and Rena, who were both white. And they decide to let everyone know that Rena was pregnant with Fred's kid, but they had a miscarriage. And then that's why Charmaine is half Asian because they adopted a different baby. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, 
I don't know how things were in 1963. They just like said it to appease family and neighbors and whatnot, but it is kind of messed up. And poor Charmaine. I know. Like, I don't know. So just super odd. And I feel like a lot of people wouldn't believe that story because it's like, oh, we went to have a baby. We had a miscarriage and we somehow really quickly found this other baby same age to adopt. (laughs) But they went with it. And it's soon after Charmaine's birth that the couple moves to Glasgow. So Charmaine and their family is the only, like, part Asian? Yes. Okay. But there are other kids that are also mixed race later on. It will make more sense later. (laughs) The family is really messed up. Not because of the different, you know, like, parentage of the kids, but... Yeah. Rose. Yeah. All of them are their kids, but some of them not necessarily are Fred's biological kids. Okay. And we'll get into all of that. But by July of 1964, Fred and Rena have a daughter together who they name Anna Marie. So it's Charmaine and then Anna Marie. Yes. Charmaine and then Anna Marie. And the girls are less than a year and a half apart. So they have a super strong bond with each other, especially as they grow older and have to face the wrath of their father. Fred didn't always want the girls around him. He wants some alone time. Okay, that's fine. We all need a little break from our children. But he crosses the line when he wants this alone time because he locks the girls up in the bottom of their bunk bed. He puts up these bars between the two bunks to cage the girls inside. And he always wanted them in there. He didn't want to take care of them at all. So Charmaine and Anna Marie are only allowed out when Fred is gone working. Rena was struggling trying to raise her two kids alongside an abusive and cheating husband, so she grows to hate him. Through the years, he has multiple affairs. He's a serial cheater, and the couple had hired a nanny by the name of Issa McNeil. She helped Rena with the household chores and helped care for the children that Fred didn't want to pay attention to. And during her time with Fred and Rena West, she would have her friend Anne McFall come over all the time. So both of these girls, Issa and Anne, they're teenagers and they get close with the young couple. So with some help around the house, Rena gets a little more free time. And as she discovers more and more of her husband's affairs, she's like, screw this. I'm doing my own thing too then. Eventually, Rena starts her own love affair with a man named John McLachlan. And these two fall in love. The deeper their relationship gets, the more protective John becomes of Rena. He's noticing bruises across her body and she's often showing up to their meetups with black eyes. And this just isn't okay with him. So when Fred confronts him after coming upon Rena and John, John hugging each other, John has had enough. Fred had ran up to them, freaking out about seeing this hug, and he punches Rena. And John is like, yeah, I don't think so. He grabs Fred and punches him, but Fred takes it a step further when he pulls out a knife and starts swiping it at John. The blade slices John's stomach, but it's only a superficial wound. So John punches Fred again, taking him down. There was another time that John and Fred get into an altercation. It's when Charmaine is asking Fred for an ice cream cone. Remember, Fred works driving an ice cream truck, so this seems like a very innocent ask, but Fred punches Charmaine in the head. John literally hates this dude so much, so he has no hesitation as he starts beating up Fred. And he makes a statement years later saying, quote, He can't tackle a man, but he wasn't so slow in attacking women. 
Eventually, the family leaves Glasgow to return to Gloucester. Fred fled Scotland in late 1965 because while he had been driving his ice cream truck on November 4th, 1965, he runs over a little boy who dies from his injuries. Hmm. Yeah. So this little boy dies and Fred isn't charged with anything. The incident was deemed by police to be an accident, but Fred thought the community would no longer accept him. And he was probably right. So he leaves with Charmaine and Anna Marie, finding work at a slaughterhouse where he will be driving a lorry, which is a large vehicle meant to transport goods. Rena doesn't really want to go. She doesn't even like Fred, but she's missing her girls. So she reluctantly makes the move in February of 1966. Rena feels like she can't go alone. So her teenage nanny and her nanny's friend come with her. Remember, this is Issa McNeil and Anne McFall. Okay. All six people move into a caravan that Fred parked at Timberland Caravan Park, which a caravan sounds just like an RV. So they're like at an RV park. Issa and Anne came because they thought they would have better job opportunities there in England. But Rena doesn't even make it a whole year before she's calling her lover, John, back in Scotland. She's like, look, I've made a big mistake coming here with Fred. He's violent and he's aggressive. I'm going to stay if I, I'm going to die if I stay here with him. Please come to England and save us. Will you pick up me and the kids and the nannies? John agrees. He knows Fred is a terrible man, so he joins forces with John Trotter, who is Issa McNeil's boyfriend back in Scotland. The men come up with a plan to come to England and pick up the women and children, but when the day comes and everyone shows up to the meeting spot, Fred also shows. He was tipped off. By this point, he had been having an affair with Anne McFall. So when Rena and Issa shared the plan with her, she lets Fred know that they were trying to leave with the kids. Fred shows up in a fury. He's yelling at everyone. He starts fighting John McLachlan and things get tense. Fred grabs onto Charmaine and Anna Marie, refusing to let them go. Anne says she's staying there with Fred and the girls and a broken Rena leaves with John McLachlan, John Trotter and Issa McNeil. She knows that it's what's best for her, but it's not best for her daughters to be staying behind. It was painful to leave, but she's at the end of her rope with Fred. She comes back often to visit Charmaine and Anna Marie, but her visits slow down after she's sentenced to three years of probation on November 29, 1966. During one of her visits, she had stolen from some. Th- wow, can't talk. <laughs> During some one of her visits, she had stolen things from Fred's van, and this was back in October of 1966. He had turned her in, and by November, she's arrested and given probation. So now Rena stops alternating between Scotland and England. After she had left Fred, she was kind of going back and forth so she could see her kids but not be trapped there. Mm-hmm. But she does continue to make contact with her children. She's just not seeing them as much as she would like. Now Fred and Anne McFall feel like they have their own little family. Anne is taking on a mothering role to Charmaine and Anna Marie, which Rena hates. The girls had been friends before, but once Anne decided to stay back and get into a full-blown relationship with Fred, that friendship ends. By the end of 1966, Anne is pregnant with Fred's baby. Anne was from Glasgow, Scotland. She had grown up there and was working as a knitwear in a knitwear factory before meeting the West family and ultimately making that move to Gloucester, England with them. She maintains contact with Issa McNeil after Issa and Rena leave with the two Johns. She's writing letters to her as well as her own family. 
Anne is telling them that she's going to have this amazing life out in England with Fred. But by July of 1967, when Anne is 18 years old and eight months pregnant, she disappears. Her family isn't sure what happened when Anne stops contacting them. And since Fred is the only one she's connected to in England, she is never reported missing. Anne was missing for 27 years before her remains are found in June of 1994. Remember, nine bodies are discovered in February of 1994 in the home of Fred and Rose West. But there were three other bodies. Anne's was found in a shallow grave in a cornfield near Muck Markle, the village where Fred grew up. After his arrest, Fred admitted that he got into a fight with Anne and he flew into a rage. He claims he stabbed her to death in a crime of passion. However, her remains tell a different story. Anne had her wrist bound by a dressing gown rod. She was restrained before being murdered. Fred had also dismembered her. Multiple phalange bones, aka the fingers, are unaccounted for, and this is a pattern in the discovery of Fred's victims. He likely kept these items as a trophy for his kills. Investigators believed Anne's baby was removed from her womb before she was buried. This is the last body investigators uncover in Fred's case, but Anne is the first known victim. An expert stated that the outcome of someone's first kill often plays into them becoming a serial killer. If they're able to get away with murdering someone once, it fuels them in thinking they can continue committing these crimes without consequence. So, about a month after Anne's murder, Rena visits. She has no idea what happened, but she's glad Anne isn't in the picture anymore. She doesn't realize that Fred murdered her or that she herself would suffer a similar fate. Ugh. Yeah. That's sad. So sad. So, Rena ends up staying there with Fred for a while, giving the marriage one more shot. The couple moves their caravan to the Lake House Caravan Park, but the honeymoon phase of being back together does not last long. Rena leaves for a final time the following year, again without Charmaine or Anna Marie. She'll make contact with them here and there and do random visits, but she just can't do this with Fred any longer. So it's heartbreaking that she had to leave her kids behind with this monster. Like, I hate that she left her kids behind. I know, because who knows what would he would do to them. I know. Like, I know she had to leave, but I just wish she would have taken them and then never brought them for a visit. Yeah. That would have been the best. We know Fred is not a great dad. When he couldn't take care of his own kids once Rena leaves and Anne is murdered, so now he just has his kids on his own... He would just release them into the custody of social services while he takes a break, and then he would pick them up at his convenience. I didn't realize you can do that, but I swear I keep reading this in a bunch of cases of people just like dropping their kids off to social services and then coming back for them when they want them. I was like, dang, I'd be worried if I dropped my kids off to social services. I wouldn't think you can just get them back. I know. Yeah. You would think it'd make it a little bit. Well, I don't know. I don't know after working with them. I know. Seriously. Yeah. And Fred just, he wasn't a good parent. So I'm shocked social services didn't see, you know, any signs. He was mean and degrading. And Rena's daughters were definitely in danger with him. It's in the early months of 1969 when Fred is sitting at a bus stop in Chetlinham, England, and a girl sits next to him. And I literally mean a girl, not a woman. It's his future wife, Rose West. She's only 15 years old when she sits down next to the 27-year-old scruffy man who starts hitting on her. 
She's actually super grossed out by Fred at first. Again, she's a literal child. She's 15. He's 12 years older than her, and he is not looking good. She was taken back by how he looked like he didn't even take care of himself. She described him as a tramp. I'm not really sure like what that necessarily means in England or maybe at that time. Yeah, true. But that was her first impression of him, a tramp. Which I don't think means the same thing as like... I know. It often means over here. Yeah. (laughs) So Fred asks Rose on a date and she's like, absolutely not. No, thank you. But then he comes back to the bus station each day waiting for her and making sure to sit by her once she arrives. He goes as far as to stalk her, finding out where she works. And she works at this little bread shop in town. So he takes roses to her one day, sending a random woman off the street inside with the roses. This woman tells Rose that the man outside brought her this gift. It's the same day that Rose finally agrees to a date with Fred after she had said no on multiple occasions. Regardless of his persistence, I mean, he was literally grooming her. He was showing. Yeah, that's definitely absolutely what he was doing because he's showing her all this attention. He's trying to be charismatic. He's trying to persuade her, a child, to be with him. And even though she did not want to date this gross man, she is able to be groomed by him and ultimately falls into his trap. So she gives into that first date and it doesn't take long for the duo to get into a full-blown relationship. So who is Rose West? She was born Rosemary Pauline Letts on November 29, 1953 to parents William Andrew Letts and Daisy Gwendolyn Fuller. This was one of the things Fred and Rose bonded on. Both of their mothers were named Daisy. Rose is born into a family that was struggling for money, and she was the fifth of seven children. Her mom is known to have suffered with depression, not only postpartum, but also during her pregnancy. One thing that people point to for Rose's deranged behavior in her life is that Daisy had ECT psychiatric treatment just one week before Rose was born. Now, this is electroconvulsive therapy, which basically treats major depressive order and bipolar disorder. It creates a generalized seizure without muscular convulsions and can be done bilateral like temple to temple or unilateral from front to back. And basically a current passes between electrodes and into the brain. But this treatment is still used today. It's actually FDA approved here in the U.S. Initially, it was approved as a class three device back in 1976. But in 2018, it was categorized as a class two device. And it is said that ECT is actually one of the least harmful methods for a fetus in women who are severely depressed. So I don't really think that it would be a reason Rose turns into what she turns into. Yeah. Would you? No. People just are looking at that and probably don't know much about it and they're like that's why yeah i mean it's got to be multifactorial right yeah yeah definitely i think any killer is Mm -hmm. like there's more than one thing that plays into who they become yep for sure so rose is described as a moody teenager and she wasn't performing well in school but it's likely that rose was being sexually abused throughout her childhood It's alluded that there were rumors of Rose being abused by her father, and in her daughter May's book, Love is Always Mom, May says that her mom did have a dark past that she could see really pained her. This could explain the odd behavior once Rose hits puberty, and she's openly walking around the house naked in front of her father and her brothers. So she's starting to be like really sexual, really young. 
Hmm. And by 13 years old, she is sneaking into her younger brother Graham's room. He's four years younger than her. He's nine years old at the time. And Rose starts molesting him during the night. And soon she's doing the same to her youngest brother, Gordon. Oh. Yeah. Clearly to me, this is a learned behavior. And we know by 15 years old, she meets Fred. So it's sad for her at this time in her life. Like, I do feel bad for her as a child if she was, you know, done wrong by her own family, sexually abused, and then she easily falls into the grips of another predator. I will say here, I do not feel bad for her later in her life. Like, we all grow up and have to make the right choices, and she does not. Right. But at, when she's a kid, it she was not done right. No. Yeah. Soon, Rose is skipping shifts at the bread shop to babysit Charmaine and Anna Marie for Fred over in his caravan before she quits her job completely to be their nanny. Fred is like, listen, if you watch the girls for me, I'll give you enough money to take back to your parents every week, and that way they'll still think you're working at the bread shop. Now, this works for a while, but when Rose decides she wants her family to meet her boyfriend, things go south. Right off the bat, Rose's mom can tell that Fred is a pathological liar. He's making up stories that don't even make sense about all this property he owns. And they immediately hate him. And it's not okay to them that she's in a relationship with an older man. If her dad was sexually abusing her, I'm assuming the age difference may not have necessarily been his problem. Maybe it's just the fact she was getting serious with someone. I don't know. But I, it's also not confirmed that she was sexually abused, so... Hmm. You know, could be either or. Well, so did she deny that she ever was? I don't think so. Okay, but I, they just couldn't prove. Like, yeah, you know, like, I don't think her parents or siblings say she was, but I think she does say she was. Okay. Her, like, her daughter May in her book did say her mom had, like, a dark past. Mm-hmm. So I think she probably was. So Daisy and William, they contact the social services ASAP to let them know that this older man is having sex with their daughter. In August of 1969, social services takes Rose out of her home and places her into a home for troubled teens. She's living here permanently and she's only allowed out of the home under supervision. Sometimes she's allowed to go stay for the weekend with her family, but she always took this opportunity to visit Fred. So the relationship continues. Three months later, when she's 16 years old, Rose is released from the troubled teen's home and allowed to go back to her parents. Fred had been caught for theft and was serving a month-long jail sentence, but when he is released, she moves into a flat with him in Chetlinham, England. Wow. So by 16 years old, she's living with this 28-year-old man that Mm -hmm. her parents hate. Yeah. Not a good situation. Yeah. So what were Charmaine and Anna Marie doing while their dad was in jail? Well, they went into the care of social services, but once he's free, he's able to just go and pick them up. So now Fred, Rose, Charmaine, and Anna Marie are all living in this flat together. And a flat, if you don't know, I think it's pretty obvious, but are apartments, right? Like a apartment type place or like, you know, a level in a home or a duplex or something like that. Rose's parents are still fighting this relationship. They can tell that Fred is a bad dude. No one knows he's murdered his last living girlfriend, but they can just feel his bad energy. Something is off. So in February of 1970, William tries to get his daughter away from Fred one more time. 
He reports that she is still having sex with a man 12 years older than her and that this is illegal. He even goes as far as to have a police surgeon examine her. Now, I'm not really sure why he did this, if it was to determine she was sexually abused or what, but the examiner finds that Rose is pregnant. The child is- Oh no. Yeah. So at 16, she's pregnant and it is determined to be Fred and Rose West's first child, but it has been rumored that Rose was possibly pregnant with her father's child, further playing into the statements that she was likely sexually abused growing up. So, but, but this is considered to be Fred and Rose's first biological child. But it could have been her. Could have been. Yes. Her dad's. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. They're all messed up. Yeah, they really are. And maybe they didn't even know. You know, maybe she was having sex with Fred and being abused by her dad Mm. at the same time. So they wouldn't even know. And she probably just wanted it to be Fred's. Now, once her parents find out she's pregnant, they send her back into a troubled teen's home. But she only stays for a month before being released. They tell her she can go home under one condition. She has to terminate the pregnancy. And she agrees, but with no intention to follow through. She wants to keep her baby, so she goes to live with Fred. And once she makes this decision, she's told she is no longer welcome in her family home. Before she gives birth to the baby, Fred and Rose move with the two other children to a ground floor flat on Midland Road in Gloucester. This is a two-story home, and it's split into two flats. So one family occupies the upstairs while Fred and Rose take over the downstairs. Heather Ann West is born on October 17, 1970, just one month before Rose's 17th birthday. Also notice Heather's middle name. I find it a little odd because Fred killed Anne McFall. Now he is allowing his daughter to take on Anne as her middle name. So that makes me wonder if he's the one that pushed for this name. Heather Ann. Yeah. As kind of like a, I don't know, tribute to his murder. Hmm. Yeah not it's super weird it is yeah so when heather is only a couple months old fred goes back to jail again for theft and this time he has to serve a six-month sentence so 17 year old rose is now alone taking care of charmaine anna marie and heather and she takes on the role of being the mother to the older two wait what does he go for he goes for theft he had like stolen some car tires and like a driver's not a driver's license a like license plate okay so and he had already served time before for theft so now he's going for six months and neither fred or rose were good parents we're going to get into it a lot more when we dive into all their children's lives probably in part two but they're both extremely abusive in their own ways While Fred is deemed a creep and a pedophile obsessed with incest and sex with his own daughters, his surviving children don't remember him as mean or violent. He was disgusting, but he was more meek. He would even sometimes stand up for them against their mother's violent outburst. Rose was known by her children to be very cruel. She would fly off the handle and beat her kids or degrade them. She was truly a mean woman, and she encouraged the sexual abuse that Fred would bring upon his daughters as they got older. So, neither of them are great. And this is really, this six-month period is kind of Rose's first, like, thrust into motherhood. Yeah. Because she has a two-month-old baby of her own, and now she's taking care of his two older children. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And Anna Marie remembers this time her and Charmaine were with Rose. Charmaine was eight years old and Anna Marie was about six or seven. Both of the girls were physically and emotionally abused by Rose, but Charmaine always stood strong. She was really tough. She tried to be tough for her younger sister. And while Anna Marie would submit to Rose, Charmaine never would. She wouldn't even cry when she was physically attacked. She would stay straight-faced and it just pissed Rose off even more. Charmaine always made sure to let Rose know how much better her real mummy was. Remember, Rena is Charmaine and Anna Marie's mom. Charmaine is like, you know what? My real mom will come and like she will save us. She never used to swear at us. She would never scream at us. And again, this just throws Rose into a further rage. <laughs> There's a little girl named Tracy Giles who lives in the upper floor flat of the home on Midland Road. And she recalls a horrific incident where she bursts into Charmaine's home. She was coming down to see if Charmaine could play. The two girls were little besties, but she walked in on a, on a site she would never forget. Charmaine has her hands tied behind her back. She has a gag in her mouth, and she's standing on a chair completely naked. Rose is beside her, yielding a wooden spoon that she was hitting Charmaine with. Tracy was shocked, but she makes eye contact with Charmaine, who seems unbothered. She was used to this kind of humiliating beating. Oh, that is terrible. I know, and she's eight. Jeez. And though she seems unbothered, obviously it was affecting her. She just puts on this tough face and just she doesn't want to show Rose that it hurts her. Yeah. And during this six-month period that Rose is taking care of the girls, there are hospital records that show Charmaine was admitted to the Gloucester Royal Hospital on March 28, 1971. Rose had brought her in because of a puncture wound to her ankle. But Rose tells hospital workers that it was just an accident. Charmaine had done this to herself while messing around. So no one suspects child abuse. Now, between June 15, 1971 and June 24, 1971, Rose murders Charmaine West, her boyfriend's eight-year-old stepdaughter. Remember, this is what? even... Yeah, this is... Oh, my goodness. So sad, huh? Yeah. So he was still in jail? He's still in jail when Charmaine is murdered by Rose. Whoa. And this isn't even his biological daughter. She should not have even been there. It's Rena's daughter with that other man. But it's just, it's really crazy, we always say, when two people like this find each other. Because he murders someone before he even meets Rose. Rose murders his stepdaughter while he's in jail. So they both have done a murder on their own before they start killing together. Mm. Yeah. Authorities are unsure of how Charmaine was murdered, but she was likely physically abused and succumbed to her injuries. On June 15th, we know Charmaine was alive because Rose takes the three girls down to the jail to visit Fred. And then Fred is released from jail on June 24th. Charmaine had died by the time he's out. They were able to determine this with some dental records and like a photo of her that was taken just before the 15th, where like she has some missing teeth in the top uh-huh. and so with that they're able to determine that she had died just you know within days probably after visiting uh fred at the jail because those teeth must have not grown back in you know yeah and whatnot so they were able to determine she was for sure killed before he is released 
And remember that little girl who was friends with Charmaine, Tracy Giles? Well, her mom brought her over to the Midland Road house in June. The Giles family had moved out of the upper flat back in April, but Tracy wanted a little play date with Charmaine. When Rose answers the door, she tells Tracy she's gone to live with her mother and bloody good riddance. Oh, geez. Yeah. So she's clearly glad she's gone. Rose starts telling everyone, including Anna Marie, that Rena had come to England to pick up Charmaine and take her back to Scotland with her. Anna Marie is confused as to why her mom would come pick up Charmaine, but not her. She longed to be with her mother, too, so that she could escape the abuse of Rose and Fred. But when Fred is out of jail and Anna Marie asks why their mom would only pick up Charmaine, he would tell her, quote, she wouldn't want you, love. You're the wrong color. So remember, Charmaine's half Asian. Yeah. So I guess he's just using that to say, Rena only wanted her because of her color, and that's why she didn't pick you up, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So Anna Marie's just made to feel like she wasn't good enough for her mom to want her, which would be really crappy to think your mom came and picked up your sister, and then you're stuck with these, like, monsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very sad. You would not think life was fair. No. It's like traumatizing. And, you know, they've obviously, Anna Marie has been through much trauma, even more to come, unfortunately. And since Rose had killed Charmaine while Fred is locked up, she puts Charmaine's body into the coal cellar below the flat and she just waits for Fred to come home. She must have told him that Charmaine had died. I'm not sure if she's just straight up like, hey, I killed her, or if she frames it as an accident, but Fred agrees to get rid of Charmaine's remains. When Fred later admits to his crimes, he swears up and down that he did not dismember Charmaine. But when she's exhumed in 1994, it seems that her body was severed at the hip. Whether this happened after the burial or not could not be determined. She was, though, missing her kneecap, some of her fingers and toes, as well as bones from her wrists and ankles. Just like in Anne McFall's case, it's believed these bones were kept by Fred. Ew. Uh, yeah. The bones are like a constant in each of the bodies they discover. There are always missing bones, like the finger bones or the kneecaps. And he must have kept them as his trophies. Oh my gosh. Disgusting. Just little tiny bones. Yeah, he is definitely sick. They're both sick, yeah. So when Fred confesses after his arrest in 1994, he helps lead authorities to the three bodies that were not in the home. Charmaine was buried below the kitchen window on the property of the Midland Road home. As the next couple of months go by, Rena keeps trying to contact her girls, but there is excuse after excuse about why she cannot talk with Charmaine. By August of 1971, Rena is on edge. She leaves Scotland and heads to McMarkle, Fred's hometown. And she's there to talk with his family because she hasn't been allowed to visit the girls since him and Rose moved into their new flat. So she doesn't have the address. She doesn't even know where the girls are living. This is why she's getting more anxious as the time goes on. So by the time she gets to McMarkle, she's just kind of all over the place, described as really depressed and really worried. One of Fred's sister-in-laws recalls Rena's anxious behavior. It's like she knew something was wrong. So this sister-in-law gives Rena the address and off she goes to find her daughters. We're not sure about exactly what goes down, but this sister is, sister-in-law is the last person to ever see Rena alive again. Her family doesn't know what happens to her when they lose contact with her in 1971, so she isn't reported missing. 
it's speculated that Rena was strangled to death in the backseat of Fred's Ford Popular vehicle. Later on, Fred is the only one charged in Rena's murder. Rose is charged in Charmaine's murder and in the murder of the nine victims found within their home, but Fred has these other two murders that investigators say he did on his own, two that Rose is not charged with. It's the murder of Anne McFall before he ever met Rose and now Rena. But I wonder if Rose was involved in Rena's death like she was in the future murders. I mean, she is the one who killed Charmaine. So she's the reason that they're now, in their minds, needing to murder Rena. Right. And when Rena's body is recovered, there is metal tubing found with her remains. It's something that investigators tied to the possibility of her being restrained and sexually assaulted before her murder. While she was likely murdered to stop her from asking questions about Charmaine, it would not surprise me if they tortured her beforehand, because that's what they do with their victims later on. They're like very, very sexually disturbed. Ugh. Yeah. So it just wouldn't surprise me if Rose was involved in Rena's death, but Rose has never talked about any of it. So we won't know. But Rena, she was dismembered. Her body was placed into separate plastic bags and buried at Letterbox Field near the home of Muck Markle. Rena and Anne McFall were buried close to each other. So these ones weren't in the backyard? Yes. Rena, Anne, and Charmaine were not in the backyard. Two of them are in a field, Rena and Anne, near Muck Markle, Fred's, Fred's home village. And then Charmaine is on the property that they lived in before they move over to the house on 25 Cromwell. Okay. Yep. So before Rose and Fred were ever even married, there have been three murders connected to them. The murder of 18-year-old Anne McFall, the murder of 8-year-old Charmaine West, and the murder of 26-year-old Catherine Bernadette Costello West. And that's where we will end part one. There is so much more to come. This will likely be at least three parts, but in part two, we will <laughs> dive into Fred and Rose's marriage, the home they move into and confer, convert into this brothel type home with peepholes and a torture cellar. And we'll dive into all their kids and the sickening parents they were, as well as their first assaults and murders. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I also research, write, and edit this show. Our co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our music was created by Jaden Schultz, and our palette cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters. Spotify is doing their wrap-up for the year, so if we're on your top list, make sure to post it on social media and tag us. We will give it a share. We always love it when you share our episodes or put out a good word for us. Make sure to follow us on all our social media accounts, and we'll see you next week. I'm Charlie Waters, and today I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser about losing teeth. So as your jaw grows, the baby teeth allow the big teeth a permanent place to grow. As those permanent teeth grow in, it loosens up the baby teeth. And then your baby's tooth falls out, and your next one starts growing in. And I lost a tooth. The end. Bye. Have a great day. For an organization today, I wanted to highlight the Rape Crisis Center in Gloucester, England. They have a helpline and you can call them at 4414525267770. 
Again, that's 4414525267705.